Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I am your host for To The Point, the podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. This episode is all about the second program of our season, Kaleidoscope, and it's also the first triple bill, or in ballet jargon, mixed bill, on our season. Need a quick refresher course? Triple Bills are programs in which you get to see three short works in one single evening. Unlike story ballets, which usually span several acts with intermissions in between, during a Triple Bill evening, you'll see three totally separate works, often by three different choreographers, to three different pieces of music. Check back in a month or two when I talk about Program 8, the Shostakovich trilogy, for a Triple Bill that's a little different than this standard. But in general, that's what you're going to get. So what is the assortment you're going to see in Kaleidoscope? I like to think of this program as a little trip through 20th and 21st century ballet history, going from George Balanchine's neoclassical Divertimento No. 15 to Benjamin Millepied's romantic Appassionata to Justin Peck's contemporary Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. It's also a bit of a trip through music history, featuring the classicism of Mozart, the romanticism of Beethoven, and the contemporaneity of electronic music project M83. Hear what I did there? Classical, romantic, contemporary. All right, curious to hear more? Then let's get to the point. The first ballet you'll see on Kaleidoscope is George Balanchine's Divertimento No. 15. Balanchine is one of the most important and most famous choreographers of the 20th century, and his impact can be felt on almost every ballet choreographer working today, including the two he's paired with here. Benjamin Millepied, and Justin Peck. So why did he have such a big impact? Well, in part, it's because he founded both the School of American Ballet and New York City Ballet with impresario Lincoln Kirstein. That company and school were foundational to the development of ballet in New York and in the United States at large, much as San Francisco Ballet was instrumental here on the West Coast. And both Benjamin and Justin danced, or in the case of Justin, currently dance, for that company. But although Balanchine is known for being the quote-unquote father of American ballet, he wasn't in fact American. He was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, and trained at the Imperial Theater School before joining the Mariinsky Ballet. He was also trained in music, becoming an accomplished pianist, even playing the piano at cinemas during the Revolution in exchange for bread. Balanchine left Russia following the Revolution and became a part of the Ballet Russe before heading to the United States in 1933, where he remained until his death 50 years later in 1983. Throughout his career, Balanchine made a lot of innovations in ballet, not least by focusing on short, plotless works and by stripping costumes down to often just a leotard and tights. But perhaps perhaps most remarkable was his relationship to music, something that both Benjamin and Justin are clearly influenced by in their two pieces on this program. Before Balanchine, most choreographers worked largely with music written expressly for ballet. A composer like Ludwig Minkus would collaborate closely with a choreographer like Marius Petipa to create music expressly written for the story that the choreographer wanted to tell. Other choreographers would also use that music, but it was fundamentally written to be accompanied by dance, not just to be listened to. That started to change in the first half of the 20th century, as choreographers, inspired by Isadora Duncan's iconoclastic use of existing classical music, and of symphonies in particular, began to make use of scores by great composers like Chopin, Mozart, and Beethoven. But it wasn't without controversy. Many music and dance purists felt that this mixing of worlds was bad for the music, 
and bad for the ballet. But Balanchine, with his strong musical background, his close relationships with composers, his ability to create his own piano reductions of orchestral scores, and his devotion to using the music as it was written, he wasn't changing it or arranging it, proved these detractors wrong and made choreographing to this kind of music standard fare in what came to be known as neoclassical ballet. One such ballet is Divertimento No. 15, created in 1956. It's set to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's Divertimento No. 15 in B-flat major, composed in 1777, plus a cadenza by John Coleman, added in the 1960s. Balanchine considered this piece the finest Divertimento Mozart ever wrote, and this 1956 version was his second attempt to choreograph this music. The first attempt was a ballet called Caracol, which Balanchine made in 1952 for New York City Ballet. Unfortunately, the company just didn't dance it very much, and when in 1956 the company was asked to bring a Mozart ballet to the bicentennial celebration of Mozart's birth at the American Shakespeare Festival, nobody remembered it. So Balanchine started from scratch. What resulted is definitely a tutus and sparkles ballet, nothing like the minimalist works Balanchine was creating simultaneously, such as Agon, but it's anything but stuffy. It features five principal women, three principal men, and a court of ballet of eight. And this ballet is really a showcase for its dancers, highlighting their technique, musicality, and their pure joy of dance. In terms of what to look for, you should keep an eye out for the solos for the principal women and one principal man. Balanchine made this ballet for some of his very favorite dancers, and each of these variations on a theme showcases something unique about their personalities and technique. Also note the numbers games he plays. Like Mozart's music, which exemplifies the clarity, balance, and formality of classical style, this ballet moves its dancers in pairs and threes to create a sense of symmetry and proportion. Although perhaps best known to the non-ballet-going public for his marriage to actress Natalie Portman, Milpier is famous in his own right for his work with New York City Ballet, Paris Opera Ballet, and now with LA Dance Project, which he founded in 2012 and through which he funnels his many multimedia and multimodal projects. Before his time as a choreographer, Milpier danced for New York City Ballet after training both in his native France and at the School of American Ballet. He missed Balanchine, who died before he joined the school. But while at the School of American Ballet, he caught the eye of the other major visionary who worked there alongside Balanchine and Kirstein, choreographer Jerome Robbins. Robbins was also hugely influenced by Balanchine, but he brought his own particular creative genius to New York City Ballet, creating ballets and Broadway productions that were deeply invested in human relationships and in the connections between people. For more about him and his history, go check out the To The Point episode on Robin's Ballet and Broadway from 2018. To my mind, Appassionata seems to blend some ideas taken from both Robin's and Balanchine. This ballet is like Divertimento No. 15 to music not intended for dance, Ludwig von Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 23 in F minor, commonly known as the Appassionata. Fiendishly difficult to play, this sonata is explosive, volatile, and impassioned a stark contrast to the sunny clarity of Mozart's divertimento, and it highlights the move from musical classicism to romanticism that occurred during Beethoven's lifetime. The ballet itself is made for three couples, who seem to be thrown together and apart across the course of an evening. It seems in some ways to reference Jerome Robbins's ballet In the Night, also made for three couples, and also tracing connection and disconnection in an abstract space that seems like it might be a garden or a party or a country home. 
The heart of this ballet is the central potida set to the andante. This romantic interlude interrupts the frenetic pace of the opening allegro and transforms the emotional energy of the ballet. You'll also notice a big change at this point in the ballet. The dancers change their costumes and footwear, switching from brightly colored dresses into neutral tunics that resemble lingerie, and leave behind their point shoes for the softness of canvas ballet slippers. Their movements change with this transition as well, creating a deeper sense of engagement with the floor and a kind of informality that ties into the ballet's vague storyline. The final ballet on this program is also by an artist who's gaining more and more international acclaim, Justin Peck, who's not only the resident choreographer at New York City Ballet and not only a soloist in the company there, but also helping to run the place alongside four other people as the organization continues its search for a new artistic director. Oh, and he uh, might have won a Tony last year for his choreography in the Broadway musical Carousel, and his choreography was featured in feature film Red Sparrow, and you might have seen some pieces he made for the New York Times earlier, I guess at the end of last year, and you'll see his ballet rodeo later this season at San Francisco Ballet as part of Program 6, Space Between. But busy though the 30-year-old may be, and as unaccomplished as he makes me feel, he found time two years ago to come out west and work on a new ballet for Unbound um, in the summer of 2017. Entitled Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, this ballet was inspired by our own beloved city, in particular by that special light that San Francisco has. And the music also has a California history. It's set to music by French electronic music project M83. Written when M83 creator Anthony Gonzalez moved to Los Angeles, this album was what Justin found himself listening to when he was here in San Francisco, making In the Countenance of Kings in 2015. I'll let Justin tell you about it. Last time I was here, I was creating a ballet called In the Countenance of Kings, and I spend a lot of time in the city um, uh, going on long walks, and I started to listen to this uh, double album by a group called M83, and I sort of fell in love with the music, and to me it really uh, meshed well with the feel of the city and... um, like the lighting that this city has, which is very unique, um, the natural light. And, uh, and I also thought a lot about the dancers that I was working with at that time. And so when I was invited back to create my second work, um, I felt like it might be an interesting choice to um, work with that piece of music based off of my uh, personal experience with it. Um, the piece is for 14 dancers, and uh, and it's um, it's actually set in sneakers. Um, you know, typically at the ballet, most works are choreographed uh, for women in point shoes and men in ballet slippers. And um, and recently, I've begun to explore what it's like to work with dancers in sneakers and how it influences the way of moving and. Um, and also my own choreographic style, and um, and it'll, it allows me to incorporate different sort of influences into the work as well. Um, and so that's been really exciting for me, and it feels like we're um, sort of entering new territory um, because of that tool. 
Wait, what did he just say? Sneakers? Yep, you heard that one right. This is a sneaker ballet. No freed point shoes, but rather some cads on the women and converse on the men. Plus a little bit of felt on the bottom to help with turning. The idea of putting ballet dancers in sneakers isn't entirely new. Jerome Robbins, who I mentioned earlier, also experimented with this non-traditional footwear. And as for Benjamin, Robbins is a big influence on Justin as well. This non-traditional footwear changes the dancer's relationship to weight and to the floor, grounding them in a way that seems freshly modern. But Justin is also, like Benjamin, influenced by Balanchine, and sometimes in perhaps more obvious ways than Benjamin is. For one, his use of the corps de ballet resembles that of Balanchine. In this piece, you can look for the two duets and how they differ from one another. They're kind of the beating heart of the ballet. But look, too, for the way that soloists appear and disappear within the greater mass, suggesting not just a community, but actually a whole world of inspiration and dream. And, and this is also like Balanchine, the movement in this ballet is fundamentally classical. It's in the uprightness of the body and the way the limbs move outward from a central core. And yet, Justin is blending that classicism with a modern vernacular. And somehow, no matter what he does to the movement, it clearly remains ballet. And that's really his inheritance from Balanchine. And that's it. That's Program 2, Kaleidoscope. Don't forget to check out our other To The Point and Meet The Artist podcasts. This year, we've consolidated our Meet The Artist interviews and points of view uh, lectures into a single podcast feed, and we'd love to hear your feedback on that new format. All of our recent podcast episodes live on our site at sfballet.blog, as well as in your favorite podcast player, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher, really wherever you get your podcasts. If you hit subscribe, you'll get our new episodes downloaded just as soon as they're posted so you won't miss a single one. In addition, please do leave us a rating or review in whatever your favorite podcast app is. It really helps us to reach new and bigger audiences. And reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all platforms, we're at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you at the Opera House.